the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are continuing with our series entitled uh, Homecoming, based on a book that I wrote last year, How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And uh, where we left off last week, um, we were talking about um, why is this bringing of Jew and Gentile uh, such a threat to, well, this Jew and Gentile together in, as one new man, as one new humanity of uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 4, and as we'll see uh, in today's show, Ephesians chapter 5. But also, this one new man concept can be found uh, additionally in Galatians chapter 2 and 3, and also uh, extensively in the book of Romans uh, in chapters 9 and 10 and 11. So um, you need to start reading those because I believe this is what God in this season is rolling out. He's rolling out the answer and the revelation of what Paul calls a mystery. Um, I call it, we're in chapter 11 of the book, which is uh, a construction project, a mysterious construction project that God is building. And where we left off um, on the last show, um, what is so threatening um, as God brings Jew and Gentile back together in Ephesians 2, uh, making us uh, one family. Uh, the Gentiles are brought near by the blood of the Lord, blood of Jesus. And uh, as such, when Gentiles become born again, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says they become part of two organizations. One is called the um, Commonwealth of Israel. Um, that's pretty amazing because it sounds like you just became a citizen of a nation uh, and a movement and a group. But actually, uh, Israel also can represent of uh, the actual presence and um, essence of Yeshua as our Messiah, Jesus as our Savior. And, and you'll see a lot of that referenced in Romans 9 and 10 and 11 when it starts talking about the wild branches of the Gentiles being grafted into the vine and into the root system, into the trunk, if you will, uh, which is Israel and uh, which is the essence of of the king of the Jews, who is soon to return. Um, People are sensing that we are living in very extraordinary times, very momentous uh, times, and we are. And uh, much of what has been kept hidden is now being revealed in the open. And um, But let's go on. Why is the bringing of Jew and Gentile such a threat to Satan? And then we go in after we uh, become a member of the household of Israel, also in Ephesians 2, it says, uh, you Gentiles are now members of the household of God. So now there's another uh, group that you've been brought into, brought near by the blood of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, of Yeshua, on the cross on our behalf, all God's plan. It's all part of God's plan uh, that we go through a transformation process. And uh, as you travel in this book of Ephesians over to chapter 3, God wants to put on display his many-sided wisdom to 
uh, the powers that created this entity called the rebellion, the spiritual rebellion, the angelic rebellion, the fallen angel rebellion against God. And um, he wants to send some messaging um, back to that group of angels who thought that they were going to take over God's material creation by removing mankind's authority. And um, they accomplished that in Genesis chapter 3. They didn't remove it. They just stole it. They just, uh, through conversion, uh, brought it over through deception and fraud. And uh, the messaging that God wants to do to this group of fallen angels in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 is basically to put on display that when he brings Jew and Gentile back together, um, it's to build something. It's to construct something. That's why this chapter 11 in the book of Homecoming is called Solving the Mysterious Construction Plan. Uh, uh, or construction project of one new man and Messiah, which will lead us into one new man in Father God. And so when you look at the construction project, you say, well, what are you talking about? Well, God's in the, as you can hear and see from earlier episodes, God is, as he told us in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, he's looking for uh, a house, an abiding place. He's looking for a domicile, a residence, if you will, a home where he can have his rest and get to be, again, the father and the God of his human children. And you say, well, what has that got to do with Jew and Gentile coming together? Well, we're going to see that in today's show. Because as we go on to um, Ephesians chapter 4, um, it talks about this transformation that um, is taking place in order to send another message regarding the manifold, the many-sided wisdom of God. And that transformation that is taking place, let me read it here to you on page 259. Our being united in purpose is the only thing that will ultimately defeat the adversary's kingdom of rebellion. Now, you have to understand, there are two kingdoms here. There's the, king, there's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of um, rebellion of Satan versus the kingdom of God, which is uh, obedience. And it goes on to say in page 259, our being united in purpose, that means both Jew and Gentile together that we see in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3, reflects the reality that Father God's kingdom consists of, now this is where it says in Ephesians 4, what the ultimate result is of true righteousness, which includes obedience, doing thy will be done, and holiness, which is manifested, shown, put on display, okay, by our obedience to all of the commands of Father God. I don't know if you remember this, but um, I think we mentioned in uh, an earlier show, maybe it was either last week or two weeks ago, where we talked about um, this young man who approached Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 16, and he asks him, and he says, Rabbi, what good things should I do in order to have eternal life? And you remember how we define eternal life was John seventeen three, which uh, basically said it was a relationship. It wasn't a location where you go. Uh, it's a relationship with God. That This is what Jesus said at the Last Supper in John seventeen three, and this is eternal life. I mean, that's pretty clear. <laughs> when he starts off with the words, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So keeping that in mind, here's this young man in Matthew 19, verse 16 through 17, who comes up and asks Jesus, he asks Yeshua, Rabbi, what good things should I do in order to have eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about good? There's one who is good. But if you want eternal life, the Jewish Bible says, absurd the mitzvot, mitzvot is the plural for commandments, 
And in the New King James, it says, obey, obey the commandments. Now, that may be an earth shaker to people, but when you understand that when we decide to remain after Passover, when we first come to the Lord, we you know accept Jesus as our Savior, um, and the of course the typology here, the the um, symbolism is what happened to the Jews in Egypt. You receive the blood of the Lamb, a free gift, and you you smother that blood, you rub it on the doorposts of your house because there's going to be judgment over that that kingdom of rebellion under Pharaoh. And of course, you can see the typology and the symbolism there is that that's a world a kingdom run by a tyrannical Pharaoh, which uh, people who have studied this and talk, write about typology and symbolism between the Old and the New Testaments will say, well, that's, that's a representation of Pharaoh's a representation of Satan. And so on that night, all of the firstborn in Egypt, because it was the last and the tenth plague, um, suffered death. Except the Jews, who listened to Moses, who obeyed God's instructions given to the Jews through Moses, to said, if you want to save yourself tonight, this is what you do. And do it exactly how I told you. So they had to find that unblemished lamb, which, of course, you can see the representation of Jesus being without sin. And they, they sacrifice that lamb and rub its blood on the doorposts of their home. And those who did, there was no death that night in Goshen, where the Hebrews lived. And so the question becomes, well, why, would, why were they saved? What was the point? What was God trying to do to, by saving the Jews that night? Now, they couldn't earn that. It was a free gift. We understand that. But it was the point of saving the Jews that night was to bring them out of that control or that power system of rebellion against God. It was a, Egypt was a demonic system. It was full of its own gods and its own operational rules and system that had nothing to do with the God of Israel. In fact, they rejected the God of Israel by persecuting and killing his people and the, you know, the young babies who were all going to take the Jewish males and, and eliminate them because the Jewish population was growing so much. Uh, Pharaoh uh, was taken over by fear and said, we need to uh, eliminate the numbers of the Jews. But the other thing was the persecution and the slavery. All of that represents the power of sin over our lives if Satan is a representation of Pharaoh, or maybe the other way around, Pharaoh is a representation of Satan. And so they were saved from death that night as they obeyed. They obeyed the command, and they lived. And so... Here in the New Testament, we have this young man approaching Jesus and saying, what do I have to do to have an eternal life? There's a, there's a, a belief, there's another verse or another uh, scenario where another, the rich young ruler comes up and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And uh, he said, Jesus answered the same, keep the commandments. And, and he says, well, what commandments? Oh, he, let me think now. What was it? Oh, he says, what commandments are those? And so I think Jesus mentioned about four of the, of the Ten Commandments, and the rich young ruler said, oh, I've kept all of those. No problem. And then Jesus said, knowing his heart, knowing where his God was, knowing where his idol was, he said, just one more command. Go and sell all your belongings and then give um, the money to the poor and then come and then follow me. There were like four, com- four more commandments there. Go, sell all your belongings, give it to the poor, and then, actually five, and then come, and then follow me. That's five. And Jesus 
wasn't didn't come to reduce um, the requirements of law on us. He actually, in that case, expanded it. He broadened it. He made it larger. And he said, are you serious about having eternal life? Because eternal life is knowing me relationally and knowing my Father relationally. And in order to do that, you can't do that by being the rich young ruler whose idol uh, happens to be all of your riches. And, of course, you know the end of the story is the rich young man went away very sad because he couldn't obey. Well, he, I wouldn't say he couldn't, but he decided through his own free will to not obey. And he went away from Jesus sad. And so here we are with describing the the, uh, nature of two kingdoms in conflict with one another. The adversary's kingdom of Satan, we talked about this last week, I'm not going to go into it, but it, it began in heaven, the second heavens, it came down to earth, and if you were to use one word to describe the nature and the character of the adversary's kingdom, it would be the word rebellion against doing God's will. That's called disobedience. And the opposite, of course, is a reflection of what Father God's kingdom's all about, and that's populated by his own children who do the opposite. They decide to do thy will be done on earth by obeying Father God's will in every dimension, in every aspect of their lives. And so I often challenge people when people say, oh, well, you know what, I went to the Billy Graham crusade and, you know, I said the four spiritual laws uh, down, I came down from the bleachers and, you know, I got a little booklet said I'm saved and I have my ticket, et cetera, and, and um, that's it. It was a free gift. I guess it's just, you know, transportation out of here. And um, I said, would, would, did anyone say that you were inviting Jesus into your heart? Oh, yes, of course. As your what? As your Savior? Oh, yes. And, I, and then I ask again, I follow up, also, as your Lord, there's a question that Jesus asks in Luke, and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then you don't do what I say? Is that a problem? What do, what do, our, what do we hear in our modern-day churches? Is that a problem? I think I shared with you that I went to a church um, of a relative of mine about four years ago, and it was Super Bowl Sunday, and I heard the uh, minister say, uh, thank goodness for good old Jesus, because if it weren't for him, I'd have to obey God. And uh, as I looked around in shock, the people were nodding up and down in agreement. I didn't see anybody stand up and say, that's not the gospel of the kingdom. That's not even close. And so if the goal is to get to know God in John seventeen three, which is uh, eternal life, the question comes, what type of question would we be asked on Judgment Day? Because Judgment Day is coming for everyone. And Jesus told some parables about some guys who thought they were really in close with, with the, you know, the heavy hitters, and they were moving in the Holy Spirit, and they were doing all kinds of miracles and, and uh, uh, casting out of demons and prophesying. I think we talked about that in an uh, earlier show, Matthew uh, chapter 7, starting at verse 21. And Jesus started out by saying, look, not everyone um, is, is going to enter into the kingdom of God uh, who, well, let me just read it. I'm going to go and actually says what he, let's go over to Matthew 7 here real quick, starting at uh, verse 21. Here it is. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who 
does the will of my Father in heaven. Wow. Is that addressed to the unsaved? The unsaved don't say, Lord, Lord. They don't know the Lord. They haven't experienced the Lord. They haven't come in contact with the Lord. But here here, uh, Jesus is telling us in verse 21 of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. And uh, he goes on in verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, now listen to what he declares to them in verse 23, I never knew you. Remember what we said eternal life was? It was knowing God and the Son whom we sent in John 17, 3. That doesn't mean know about facts and figures or our theology or our doctrine or our dogma. That talks about do you know him relationally? And I will say to them in that day, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me. What? If knowing God is union with God, if knowing God is attachment to God, if knowing God is belonging to God, then when Jesus says, depart from me, is that life or is that death? What happened to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, when they were separated from God? What happened to them? Were they alive? Were they, did they still have eternal life? Or did they suffer the opposite? Separation from God, which is eternal death. And it says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They missed the entire point. Jesus wasn't impressed at all with all of their claims, of all of their stuff that they were doing on his behalf. And he said, you missed the entire point of this kingdom. The kingdom is to get to know God, and you prove that to God by doing his will. And we're going to go into some verses in the second half of today's show. How do you know what his will is? I mean, how do we know that in his, his will is a particular situation? Well, you start off by asking him. You start off by saying, um, Lord, I don't know what to do in this particular situation. Or um, can you help me figure this out, this conundrum, this paradox, this confusing situation that I'm in. It could be a situation with a person, an individual. It could be a situation with uh, an act, what to do or not to do, the timing of it. It could be all sorts of, of things that come up in the micro, not just the macro. And you go to God and say, I really need your input here. I need your investment of your time to say, this is my will, my son. This is what I want, my daughter. And that, it, that interchange of going to God and dialogue back and forth, what you're doing is experiencing eternal life because you're beginning to know him experientially. You're beginning to know him relationally. It's done two seconds at a time in the present moment. You either are experiencing eternal life in the present moment, or you are not. You are either in the presence of God. Uh, You could be driving your car. You could be outside walking. You uh, You could be shopping. You could be working in your garden. You could be at work. You could be at home. You could be at church. And the question is, are you in union with God? Are you hanging out? Are you checking with him all the time? How do you see me now, Father? How do you see us right now, Father? Father, I want to feel your presence. Fill me up as your house. We talked about the fact that we are God's house. I'm not going to go over all those uh, verses that we already covered in uh, the last two or three weeks. But it says very clearly that God in Ephesians chapter 2 is building a house that is, is an individual house, but it's also larger as a collective to bring groups of people in. And so this walking with God, this going to the university of God after we leave Egypt, after we're saved through Passover, this going to the school of God 
is all about getting to know him. It says that in Deuteronomy 8. Uh, Father God tells the Jews, hey, I brought you out here to this desolate place, this desert, so I could get to know your motivations of your hearts. How do you really feel about me relationally? And guess what? When you bring people out of their comfort zone, they didn't have their little gardens of leeks and garlic anymore back in Egypt. They didn't have the Nile to you know, water their crops anymore. They were brought to a stark and desolate place where they had to depend on God for their next meal, for their next drink of water, for their next direction of where they were supposed to go either by the cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night. And their very lives depended on them knowing God relationally. Wow. You guys ready for this? Because this is eternal life, knowing God. We'll see you on the other side of the break. God bless. Welcome back, saints. So we're going to continue on in um, chapter 11 of this book entitled Homecoming. And this particular chapter is called Solving the Mysterious Construction Project of One New Man and Messiah. Construction project because God's building something. And we saw last week that the whole chapter 4 of Ephesians talks about where God's going on this bringing Jew and Gentile uh, back to Father God. And um, our being united together um, isn't just seen in John 17 when Jesus is praying to the Father for not only these who are the Jewish uh, apostles in front of him, but also those for the future tense of Gentiles who are going to um, uh, hear their word that we see in the Acts uh, church as the word of God's kingdom goes forth. But um, we are seeing something unique being built together, being assembled together. And we've already talked about that in Ephesians 2, Jesus is the cornerstone of this building. The apostles, the Jewish apostles and the Jewish prophets are the foundation. And um, But the body of Christ is both Jew and John, Gentile who happen to have a mutual father. And we don't get gain access to that father by getting to know him other than going through his son, the bridge of blood, as I call it. We have to pass through that bridge of blood over to the Father. And it's yes, it's exclusive. Jesus says, hey, no one gets to the Father. No one comes to the Father except by me, okay? But as that is done, what becomes threatening to the kingdom of rebellion, and that's we're going to harp on that title because that's what uh, Satan is known by. That's what he started He started a rebellion in the second heavens, and he brought it down to the earth. And that's why we're a mess ever since. And Jesus, one of Jesus's purposes, and he says this in 1 John 3, 8, we talked about this last week, he came to do away with the works of the devil. Well, what are the works of the devil? Wherever you see rebellion, whether it's inside of us still, as we rebel and saying, we don't want to keep God's commandments. We don't want to say that we... Uh, need to do this in order to live, or whether we see it in other people, whether we see it in our government, whether we see it in business, whether we see it in um, all types of life manifesting where people are operating inside being independent from God, being separated from God. They do not know relationally or experientially God, and they're operating in an opposite kingdom of thy will be done on earth. And they're operating in a kingdom of spiritual rebellion. It's a spiritual problem. It has a spiritual root, and it needs to be addressed spiritually. And so um, as we go to look at Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to read this out of the Complete Jewish Bible. Um, This is the transformation that starts to take place and where God's heading with this. 
It says, if you really listen to him, this is Paul writing now to the Ephesians, and we're instructed about him, talking about Yeshua, talking about Jesus, that you learn that since what is in Yeshua or Jesus is truth. By the way, contrasted with the opposite kingdom, what did Jesus say in John 10.10 about the opposite kingdom? Satan is the father, not of truth, but the father of lies. He says there is no truth in him. So these distinctions are really, really dramatic. The comparisons are dramatic. And then we continue on. Then so far as your former way of life is concerned, called the old nature, our rebellious old nature, this is what Paul writes. It says you must strip off your old nature. What's, what is that? How is that known? I want my way. I demand to be uh, saved by Jesus because it's all about me, and I just want to go to a place, you know, walk away from my obligations. I want my rights. All I do is talk about rights, but we don't talk about obligations. In a relationship, it's a two-way street, and you want it all our way, and then, (laughs) as Ephesians 4 says, if you don't grow up, you remain in infancy. If you don't mature, you're always going to be in diapers. You're going to be an infant, a baby. And the idea of, of Ephesians chapter 4 is to go from infancy transformationally as we put on Christ, as we put on Yeshua, put on his nature, put on his character, put on his likeness. We, began, we begin to start imaging off maturity and adulthood. It changes us from the inside out, and we're stepping away from the power of Satan over our lives. Like what? Addictions. With the, with we, the computers and the phones and everyone has access to all kinds of tintillating and salacious things on their phones, licentiousness, pornography. It's everywhere. And people are hooked on it. Addictions. Addictions like what? Addictions to drugs and alcohol. Of course, they've been around a long time. How about a, the new addictions, like addictions to staring a, on a screen on your phone? It takes all of your time. All of it. It takes all of your attention. All of it. And it has to be instantaneously gratified repetitiously. And when we engage in that, we're making decisions to not engage relationally or experientially with God. And we've elevated these new controls over our life because we're giving them permission. We're giving them authority over our eyes, our minds, what we take into our brains and let remain there, the images the messages that are sent, these aren't bringing us closer to God. These aren't bringing us into experiencing eternal life, which is relationally knowing God. How many Christians uh, proportionately spend more minutes with God than they do staring at their, the screens on their phones? Um, I think you know the answer to that. So you must strip off your old nature because your old nature is, here, listen to this. This is from the Complete Jewish Bible. We're on Ephesians 4, 21 through 24. Your old nature is thoroughly rotted by its deceptive desires. Yes, we got rescued from death on the night of Passover. We came out of Egypt, okay? But we brought some Egypt with us. Or some people never left Egypt, and they stayed in Egypt, said, well, I got saved, but I'm not going to change. I'm not going to go through transformation. I'm just waiting to be transported out of here. Well, the thing was, Moses said, come with me, follow me, and I'll reintroduce you to your God that you haven't been with for 430 years. And it was all about reunion. It was all about reconciling, getting to know God again. That's what Jesus, we talked about that last week. Jesus came to reconcile us back to our Father, not to take us to a place called heaven. I'm not against heaven, but but heaven isn't the goal. If we think it is, we sit around uh, 
pass- with passivity. We just become passive and complacent, waiting for something to happen. But if the goal is getting to know God, it changes everything within us because we think, whoa, I get to get closer in relationship to God every day. That's going to require every little bit of energy, of focus, of attention that I have, giving my thought life over to God. And people look at you like, your thought life? Yeah. You know, when, when, we taught, when we went to the Billy Graham concert and said, all right, Jesus came to redeem you, to save you, from what? We don't ask. Oh, so, I, so when I die, I get to go to heaven. Um, there's this deliverance component that Jesus came to do away with the works of the enemy, of the devil. Moving us from point A to point B doesn't address the power and control of Satan's kingdom over us. I challenge you to go to Acts uh, chapter 26. I think it's verse 18. And this is when uh, Paul is in front of King Agrippa, and King Agrippa is trying to figure out why Paul became a believer, and he's scratching his head, and he's going, boy, you were persecuting these Christians, and now um, you become part of the people on the way. And, um, and he says, let's see here, he's talking to King Agrippa, and he says, I was told that I was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And in essence, as I was told to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, this is, this is what I was told to do, to open their eyes and to bring them, listen, this is important, to bring them from the power of Satan. He didn't say to heaven. He says, I'm supposed to bring them from the power of Satan to God. The power of Satan to God. Now, think about that. What happened to the Jews when they left Egypt after Passover? When they left Egypt, they said Pharaoh no longer had authority or power over them. They removed themselves. They separated themselves, and they said, we're going back to God. We're going back to God. We're going back to to our Father who created us, who gave us the kingdom for our inheritance who's promised us land, who's promised us blessings, who's promised us prosperity. And we need to get to know this God and separate ourselves from this slavery that we're experiencing in Egypt. So now let's finish this up. And it says, you must strip off the old nature because your old nature is thoroughly rotted by its deceptive desires. That sounds familiar to uh, Genesis chapter 3, what the enemy was trying to trick um, Eve. And you must let your spirits and minds keep being renewed. See, that's where the warfare, the spiritual warfare uh, comes in, where we have to participate and give ourselves. If, if union with God, as we see in John 17, um, right before Jesus died, he says, Father, I am praying that these and those become one. That's Jew and Gentile becoming one. And then he says, I in you, Father, you in me, and we in them, listen, and them in us, so that the world may know that you sent me. If we're talking about the goal is really union with God again, then all of a sudden, this, you must let your spirits and minds keep being renewed, in, as we see in Ephesians 4.21 from Paul, that becomes a whole lot more meaningful because we're thinking if union with God is the goal, as we see in John 17.3 and in John 17.20 through 24. And then it says, and clothe yourselves with the new nature created to be godly, 
which expresses itself in righteousness and holiness that flow from the truth. Now, the New King James, it's interesting. It says, which manifests itself in true righteousness and holiness that flow from the truth. That is something that we all have to go through. It's called, the $25 word for that is sanctification. That happens to bring us from the power of Satan to God. That's what King Agrippa heard from Paul. That's what the whole point was. So, why is that important? As we come into union with God, we start to experience eternal life. We begin to know God relationally. Now, I want to read this straight out of the book. This is page 260, as we leave Ephesians 4. The adversary's kingdom is one of rebellion against God's will on earth. The opposite is God's kingdom, populated by his own children who obey his will on earth. So it's rebellion versus obedience. It's, it's life versus death. Rebellion brings death because it brings separation from God. Obedience brings us into the presence of God and eternal life and the opposite of death and rebellion is obedience and eternal life, relationally experiencing God. So take a look at Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Listen, your kingdom come. How do, now, kingdom doesn't talk about, a, it's not a place. He's, God is, Jesus is asking his Father to bring his government to earth. And he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the sole reason, the only reason that we humans are in this galactic struggle of God's governmental goodness of obedience, protective goodness of obedience, versus the adversary's governance of rebellion and evil against God's order. It's all about obedience to God's will being done here on earth by us right here, right now. And that is how we deal with Satan's kingdom of rebellion once and for all. We must continually obey God no matter the cost to us. How did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? How did, what was that last prayer before he was arrested? He said, Father, if it's possible that this cup pass from me, yet nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We need to be able to pray that just as Jesus prayed that in that Garden of Gethsemane. Anything of short of that does not address the continuing problem that God has on his hands of spiritual rebellion in people. There's nothing in the Bible that says if I get transported from point A to point B that my nature or my character changes. Check it out. I've been looking. I don't see one thing that I change um, in being transported from earth to heaven. But what the Bible does say is we have plenty of opportunity to experience transformational change by obeying God here on this earth. Makes all the difference. So let's go down to now. Let's go on to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5 compares to what happens to the sons of disobedience, as they're called, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. It spells out what occurs to us if we become sons of disobedience. Now, notice, isn't that interesting? The two kingdoms, it's rebellion versus obedience. And now in Ephesians 5, if you remain in the kingdom of rebellion, you now have a title. You have a new name. You have a new identity tag. It's called the sons of disobedience. And if you fail to separate yourself from that government, from Satan's kingdom of disobedience, it spells out what happens. Not only, I'm just going to summarize it here. Not only will we lose our inheritance in the kingdom of God, 
But we can expect the wrath and judgment of God earned by all who continue in that disobedience. A good, um, I say it on page 261, a good way to look at what happens if we obey versus what we don't, when we don't obey is in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 talks about um, the blessings of God, which are brought about by obedience. And notice it's the first 14 chapters of Deuteronomy 28. And in the uh, second part of Deuteronomy 28, it talks about what happens with disobedience uh, being prevailing in our lives, and it doesn't bring blessings. It brings curses of sickness, curses of oppression, curses of captivity, curses of affliction, curses of poverty, and more. Now, there are 14 verses of blessings when the chapter 28 begins, but there are a whole lot more verses on what happens if we decide we're going to go our own way and become part of the kingdom of rebellion. That's verses 15 through 62. Now, I say in the book, before you begin to protest that these laws of obedience and life uh, versus rebellion and death are for another era and do not apply to us today, read and compare these verses again. Keeping God's commandments brings life, which is knowing God, and material blessings. And we get to choose that, not only every day, but every moment of every day. Take a look at Deuteronomy 30. This was Moses' swan song. Look how he portrays this choice we have to make. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Isn't that interesting? He never mentions heaven and hell. I'll say it again. See, I have set before you today life and good contrasted with death and evil in that I command you today to love your Lord, your God, to walk in his ways, here it is, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, in order that you may live. See the connection here? And multiply. And the Lord God will bless you in the land. That's your inheritance, which you go to possess. I now call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, Contrasted with blessing and cursing. Therefore, says Moses, choose life that both you and your descendants may live and that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. That's all out of Deuteronomy uh, 30, uh, verses 15 and 16, and then through 19 and 20. Now, where is that comparable uh, offer or situation made in the New Testament? We'll take a look at Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 18. See, this is Paul writing. See how close this is to what Moses was presenting to the Hebrews as they were entering into the land of promise. They had to make decisions. Therefore, this is uh, Paul writing in uh, Romans chapter 6, verses uh, 12 through 18. Therefore, do not let sin rule your mortal bodies so that it makes you obey its desires. You see the word obedience, how it comes in? We're either obeying the kingdom of rebellion that dwells in us or we're obeying the kingdom of obedience, which we're attaining to. And do not offer any part of yourselves to sin as an instrument for wickedness. On the contrary, offer yourselves to God as people alive from the dead and your various parts to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have authority over you because you are not under legalism, but you're under grace. Now, grace, we said, we've discussed in earlier shows, it's not just forgiveness of sin. It's the power and the presence of God for the moment of need where you are. Therefore, what conclusion shall we reach? Shall we go on sinning? 
because we're not under legalism but under grace? He says, heaven forbid. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, then of the one whom you are obeying, you will serve, whether of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to being made righteous. By God's grace, you were once slaves to sin. You obeyed from your heart the pattern of teaching to which you were exposed. And after you have been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Or just as you used to offer your various parts as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, it, e- it led to even more lawlessness, so now offer your various parts of your body as slaves to righteousness, which leads to being made holy, set apart from God. However, now, free from sin and a slave to God, you do get this benefit. It consists in being made holy, set apart for God, listen, and its end result is eternal life. It doesn't mean dying and going to heaven. That means knowing God. Now, that's out of the complete Jewish Bible, but that's worth reading again, Romans 6, 12 through 18, and 20 through 23. The cause and effect of God's order and kingdom do not change from testament to testament or covenant to covenant. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's straight out of Hebrews 13, 8. These rules don't change. God's eternal moral law doesn't change. Wow, are you ready for this getting free from the power of sin over your life? We're going to talk about that next week. I hope you have a ton of simple truth moments in the upcoming week. See you next time. God bless. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.